Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. In this episode, I am joined by up-and-coming golf course architect Andrew Green. In part one of our two-part podcast, we discuss how Andrew got into golf, his pet peeves, his recent trip to Scotland, and much more. Look for part two to drop after the 4th of July. I hope everyone has a great and safe holiday, and without further ado, here's Andrew Green. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. What do you do in your free time? So, and it's sometimes it's books about golf. A lot of times it's uh, historical stuff, biographies. Uh, reading a great book about the Navy SEALs right now. You and Tiger. Yeah. His training is a, a little more intense than mine. Yeah, you're not doing the, the two-a-days? No, no. Not much time for that. Probably benefit from it. Yeah, I think I would too. And, uh, the, with travel, you know. How many uh, how many flights did you do last year? 133. It's a lot of legs. It's, it's when you start cool. recognizing flight attendants, you know you're probably traveling a little too much. What... Uh, What's the, uh, what's your pro tip for traveling? You know, do you have any, any tricks of the trade? Uh, TSA pre-check. And if you know you have anything pseudo on the edge, get it out of your bag. You know, don't get caught. Yeah. TSA pre-check is like a complete game changer. I think when I travel with my drone and my mixing board and mics, people think I have like a bomb. Yeah. So I doing a project in Jamaica. Sometimes I'd have to carry like machine parts or something to help expedite and i know one time it was just a simple like a hydraulic arm and they thought based on the x-ray it looked like a some kind of weapon and it was like they called for security the minute it went through the x-ray machine that wasn't fun um so where'd you grow up so i grew up kind of a little north of roanoke virginia kind of in the mountains um you know, a little bit out in the sticks, but not, not in a city by any means. And, uh, actually learned the game from my, uh, next door neighbor for the most part. My parents had golf clubs. They didn't really play. My brother played a little bit, but my next door neighbor who was a dentist played all the time. And, uh, he would hit like 125, 130 yard shots in our backyards. So in the evening I go out with him and hit shots. And then, uh, he took me to play my first full round of golf. I played with him. It was pretty cool. Muni, uh, semi-private club, uh, real simple. You know, one thing about, I was thinking about it that, you know, if I grew up at a real high level club, let's say a top 100 and I went to a place like where I grew up playing, I don't think my appreciation for that kind of golf would be there. But starting like at that lower level, 
and then seeing the best. It's like you still have an appreciation for the game I fell in love with was very simple. You know, the greens are pretty rounded, kind of pushed up, you know, architecturally not lighting the world on fire, but I just loved playing there. And, you know, I'd have a lot of wedges probably in my hand, but it was just so much fun. And, uh, what was the first golf course that you played that you realized like there was like a different type of golf? Like a, mm-hmm. there was like a, you know, that there was more to golf than what the golf course you grew up on. So probably either between the Cascades, which was about 40 minutes north of where I grew up at the homestead, uh, really cool mountain golf course, uh, Flynn and then, uh, Harbor town played that we used to go to Hilton head before it was Hilton head, like way back when and playing Harbor town, it was like playing in a bowling alley, you know, but uh, you could see there was more to it, right. than just, uh, you know, a target, a couple bunkers, you know, there was thought put into it. Harbor town, uh, Tom Doak says is one of his most influential courses. Bill course is the same. And, it's fascinating. A lot of people think it's kind of overrated now. Yeah. You know, it, it definitely puts a premium on shots, right? <laughs> and I haven't been back since some of the latest work. Um, I played it in the mid nineties, I guess. Trees it's, grow. Yeah. Little trees become big trees. That That's my deal. <laughs> you know, if you don't manage them, they get out of hand. It's, uh, the course I grew up, the uh, Muni I grew up playing at, it like all these trees were tiny when I was a kid. And now when I go back, I'm like, Whoa, I can't just like blast it over these trees anymore. So that was the course I grew up playing. I went back, I did a interview for Buffalo golfer that Mm -hmm. written thing. And, uh, they saw it and they'd gotten a new owner and they said, you know, would you come take a look? And I was like, absolutely. I'd love to go see it. I was like, my only thing I want to do is play it. Like I don't need a fee to come. I just, I just want to go play. So I went out and played and it, you know, there were all these white pines that in the, you know, late eighties, nineties were obtrusive, but now they were just like massive. It, it was mind boggling. And that was like my number one thing to them was, listen, we got to work on some of these trees because there's just so many of them and they're just snuffing the views of the mountains, uh, the lines of play. Yeah. It's, uh, are they taking them out? I haven't, I haven't been back. I don't know how much I know it's on the list. <laughs> I told them they could probably, uh, uh, get a pretty good deal on lumber. I, that's how I feel like in, in more rural areas, tree removal, you could almost just take them down and put them outside. Like I know in cities that it's so expensive to get them out, you know, right. And like, you know, don't necessarily like some places you can sell the lumber or some places, but some places you could just put it out on the corner of the property and it's going to get picked up. <laughs> right. For sure. Well, then you get, you know, uh, between all different ordinances and depending on where the clubs is, it makes a big difference in what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but some clubs have made pretty good money taking trees out and selling them. Yeah. That'd be, uh, be nice if they, uh, all clubs could make money taking them out. I think more people yeah, it would, would help balance out. things, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, how'd you get into, you know, like how, when did you decide that you wanted to do golf architecture and golf construction for a living? I was probably a a junior in high school and I was thinking about political science, chemical engineering. And, uh, you know, I was like a lot of kids 
sitting in high school class, drawing golf courses, you know, on the corners of your paper and uh, not the best golfer in the world, but just a real appreciation for the challenge of it and the problems that golf present. And I went to talk to some folks at Virginia tech and I knew the turf grass, uh, agronomy professor pretty well. Uh, talked to him. I went to talk to the landscape architecture department and they probably to their credit, looking back on it, were very concerned about a narrow focus. You know, here's a junior senior in high school. He wants to come study golf architecture. When you look across the spectrum, you know, how many people make a living doing that? Right. So, you know, how are you going to allow a kid to put all his eggs in one basket and say, you know, I'm going to be a golf architect and here I go. So they, they actually probably discouraged me a little bit. Um, but I'm the kind of person that, you know, somebody tells me, no, it only makes me try harder. Um, so, you know, that's what I decided I wanted to do. And I went to Virginia tech, uh, landscape architecture was a five-year program. Uh, and I decided in five years I was going to get two degrees and it was, a little crazy, you know, 18 hours or more a semester for five years. Uh, last two years I did, you know, over 20 credits a semester to get done and, uh, really fortunate my last summer before I, I graduated, uh, I'd met Chip McDonald in, uh, 97 at the U S open at congressional. Uh, he'd done the renovation work and, uh, he hired me the summer before I graduated and worked for him. And then before I was done that summer, he pretty much offered me a position full time. So I worked my last year on breaks and stuff for him. And then once I graduated, I started within a week, I was in the dirt, you know, building, designing stuff. Um, it, it just almost seems like it was destined to be. I mean, two degrees in five years, I, I struggled to get one done. I wasn't the best student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, uh, I like to win, you know, I'm not a uber competitive athletic person, but I still like to win, you know, uh, it's, I think like when you look at like becoming a professional golfer, like a PGA tour player, like there aren't a lot of spots and there's a lot of people trying to do it and with golf course architecture, especially now there's even less spots and there's a lot of people trying to do it. I mean, you have to be competitive. Like there's no way right. for you not to be competitive yeah, and if, make it. If, if you don't have a drive, you're not making it. I think it's really with a lot of things in life. I don't think there's many professions where if you want to be really good and you know, especially architecture, like I, I don't think you can be, you know, mediocre and really be really good. Yeah, right. you know, and get the kind of where you want to be without being super competitive. Um, so you, so you work for McDonald and sons for a number of years and then you, you started, you got out on your own yeah. and started your own firm, you know, unlike it's kind of a non-traditional path. Do you think it helped you? Oh, definitely. I just, there's no more stress in life than designing something and having to build it yourself and having no finger to point. Right. So 
you can't blame the contractor. You can't blame the architect. You can't blame anybody but yourself. Um, so it's gotta be right. And I think, uh, Chip to his credit, he, uh, you know, had a background in maintenance and uh, as a longtime superintendent, he put a lot of pressure on me to, uh, to excel and make sure things worked and make sure every line that I drew had purpose. Um, and I think that it was really important that there wasn't someone to fall back on or someone looking over my shoulder constantly. Um, I feel like I make better decisions. I see things, I can react to things better because of that pressure and, and understanding that uh, as I went. Um, and then I, I, you can't be any more invested, um, than as you work in that fashion. And, uh, I really like the idea that I, I didn't learn a system, you know, there wasn't a recipe. It was, you know, get on the golf course, find out what the golf course needs, listen to the client and respond. Um, and then I really like the idea that every course is different and they all shouldn't look the same. And because, you know, I wasn't working under an umbrella of, of a bigger name, I had that freedom. I imagine you got to work with a ton of different architects too. And, and you got to pick up things that you liked and also things you didn't like. Is there anything, you know, that you learned from, you know, specific, you know, situations like specific architects that you like really picked up and, and embraced? Like, is there something that somebody, a architect that you work for that you picked up and are like, wow, this guy does this really well. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think watching the hardest thing to do in golf period, whether you're a superintendent, a golf professional, a general manager, wherever you are in the game and in the industry, learning the political spectrum and learning the dynamics and how each club is different. And even, even from a daily fee perspective. And so watching other architects interact with committees and some are, were a lot better at bending minds, I guess, uh, to see it their way. Uh, some people, it was my way or the highway. And if you don't like it, go, uh, some guys were more thoughtful and seeing that spectrum kind of helped allow me to kind of figure out the way I wanted to proceed. And I think there's a balance and look, I'm, I think one of the cool things about what I do is that I'm constantly learning, you know, whether it's history stuff, uh, even in the dirt, but the political thing, you know, you're, you're always learning. Okay. Well, who do I need to convince, uh, to see it my way? How do I teach people what's good architecture and what isn't, you know, we talked about that a little bit yesterday. Um, and so I think that was probably the biggest thing I picked up. I was very cautious when I worked with other architects and I didn't work with a ton of them. I, I saw a lot of projects being done, but as far as hand in hand working with other guys, I didn't spend a lot of time in the field with them. Um, but you know, you see 
you see rhythms, you see uh, tendencies, some of those things with guys. Um, but it, you know, some of the big work we did with McDonald, some of the, you know, the Beth page black, um, even congressional, um, Oakmont, Marion, the first time you just, it's complicated, very complicated. People want, you know, want it to be simple, but living this life, it's, there's so many different things that are happening. Um, and I guess maybe learning from some of those other guys, maybe the best way is just to plow through and, and be, you know, the, the dominant personality and just kind of shove it down the road. But sometimes that's not a great way to live either. You know, there's a balance. I imagine working with committees. It's, it's gotta be so tough because everybody is like, everybody processes information differently. Like some people are like visual learners. Some people are like, you know, they need everything explained to them verbally. Some people like reading and like some people like you can't explain something until you get out in the field. So do you, when you're, you know, kind of pushing new ideas, how, how do you present all, all of it? Do you try and do a combination of all the, it's, it's a struggle. Um, I, I really, what I learned, I guess at some point was that you can stand up and tell anybody you have a great idea, but if they fire a question back at you and your only response is, you know, what do you do for a living? Or, you know, you don't know what you're talking about that's not a great way to try to get your point across. You're much better served to say, well, this is what I was thinking. Um, this is why I think it's important. Um, you know, talk it through, don't talk down Mm -hmm. Uh, tons of mileage out of that. Um, and then, you know, if, if you want to (laughs) see, if you want to see something uh, amazing, go to a club and talk about a subject to each administrator. So general manager, golf pro superintendent, I mean, even assistant superintendent, assistant golf pro, you know, clubhouse manager, and then go talk to the club president, you know, members of the board golfers. You want to find out, I mean, I've worked with clubs before and I've heard, you know, 12 different perspectives on something very simple just from all those different people. And it's kind of mind blowing. It's like, you know, you're all, all on the same team, but the perspectives are also different. And so, you know, that's where I really find that if you have good ideas, you explain them well, you're going to get ahead. Yeah. And, and if you can, when you're just talking to those different individuals, if you can curtail your messaging to just them, a little bit, yeah. So that, cause you can understand what they want specifically and and kind of tweak it so that they understand exactly i mean it's crazy how many people you have to get on board exactly because the vocal minority in clubs is just it's toxic so i used to say i like to have the squeaky wheel on a committee because i always like to know where that person stood and i still like that to a certain extent uh, but i also have found certainly that there are some people no matter what you say what you do what you tell them you know you're not going to convince them but I, I tell you one of the things that's most satisfying is working or hearing from those kinds of people and then doing the project and, and them coming back and say, listen, I was wrong or wow, or, you know, 
that's pretty good. So you're, you're 40. And when you look at the landscape of golf architects, people like think Gil Hans is like a young guy. He's in his fifties. It's why is the take so long in architecture to get established and, and because I feel like you're, you're just becoming like an established household name and you know, it it just, well, I mean, the whole reason I went out on my own really was that after 2008, most guys in their thirties were kind of washed out or, you know, there wasn't a ton of work and some of those guys were making a good amount of money with bigger names and they, you couldn't sustain it. And it's so hard to break out of the shadow, you know, sometimes when you're working with a big, big name guy and, um, I just saw that there was this great opportunity that there was a wake behind the really big name guys from the, you know, the boom of the nineties and and two thousands. And you had this really cool group of people that are doing amazing work now, uh, like Gil and, and, and Doak and those guys, but that all of a sudden there was kind of a gap. So I needed to get off my butt and try to fill that gap or get in line. Um, I think the reason it takes so long is no matter how much you learn in a classroom, no matter how many golf courses you see, no many, no matter even how many projects you oversee, uh, like I said, you're constantly learning and it takes a long time to get enough experience to handle the dynamics, right? Because it's more than just drawing a pretty picture or having a great idea. It's, uh, selling yourself. It's creating a plan that responds to what people are looking for, you know, something people want. Uh, and then you got to bid the project, uh, administer it, make it happen in the field, you know, and produce, manage it. it. And doing that as a young, you know, the most frustrating thing for me was right out of school. I ended up managing a couple million dollar new project. And I was a sawed off, you know, 20 something year old, working with guys that are in their fifties and sixties that had moved dirt their entire life and trying to convince them to do what I wanted them to do was hard. I bet. Yeah. You know, like yeah, they were probably like, what's this young schmuck, you know, telling me how to do my job I've been doing for 30 years. Exactly. So the easiest way to do that is beat them to work. So they get there at five or four thirty and drink coffee in their truck for an hour and smoke cigarettes. You know, you better be there before them. No matter, you know, you earn instant credibility by not, uh, you know, not being the, the quote unquote pretty boy, I guess, you know, show up, work, um, work with them. So, yeah, you know, it just, it takes time. I think, uh, there are a lot of talented people out there. Um, I think perseverance was a huge part of my life and helped me, you know, that idea of no matter what gets thrown at you, you know, you're constantly trying to do better, uh, those things really help, uh, in life and, and in architecture. What would, uh, what would you do differently if you could go back and, and do say you could, uh, you know, you could do something differently in college or you could, you know, right out of school, you could do something differently. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I would do different is I would appreciate the journey a little more. You know, you always want to get to the end. Or you always want to get, you know, like, you know, five years 
attack. You know, I, I wanted to get done. I wanted to go make money. I wanted to go build things. I wanted to go design and, 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 ha- you know, travel the world and, and do what I wanted to do. Um, thinking back on it and, and just the other day we were at a, uh, set a thing with my wife at an alumni thing and, uh, they were talking about medieval times and game of Thrones and stuff. And I was so enthralled of, man, I wish I would have appreciated all the extra things like in school and, and, uh, the life experiences other than just what I wanted to do, because I think the perspective, all those things teach you things about yeah. what you want to do. And it's really like more well-rounded. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, that's probably, you know, probably the biggest thing is just trying to appreciate that more. But I used to lose a lot of sleep over like bunker lines, like, you know, painting a bunker line and then it would keep me up at night of, you know, is that the right bunker line? I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, (laughs) they're bunkers, right? They're hazards. They're, you know. But I was hanging on probably like evolve over time. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, the minute you leave, you know, (laughs) you know, a a summer kid, you know, hits it with a sand pro or something and it's completely changed from what you've done or, you know, the, you know, whatever. So, um, I think having kids and a wife that, that we have an awesome team at home gave me great perspective on that, that, you know, the important things are the important things. Uh, some of those kind of smaller detail things of stressing over. It's not worth stressing over. You still want to, you know, excel at them, but you know, don't lose sleep over it. Like I sleep really well. I mean, maybe it's cause I work so much and I don't sleep much, but I don't stress like it's, you know, it's okay. Um, so I, you know, I think that stuff you learn over time. You're in the design contract school of thought with a little bit of build. Yeah. So look, I, I did design build for 14 years and I think there's a, a good value in it. What I struggled to find was that, you know, I like to operate equipment. I'm not the world's greatest shaper. I can run equipment good enough to get my idea across, you know? So if a guy's struggling, trying to, to get my vision, I'll ask kindly, you know, let me get on there and, and show you what I'm kind of thinking. And then you can clean up my mess kind of thing. Um, so I think there's, there's an awesome connection in doing that. But what I really struggle with is that if you're going to be a, a world-class builder, then you need to be a world, world-class builder. And if you're going to be a world-class architect, then you need to be a world-class architect. And I wouldn't trade my time doing design build for anything, but I think, uh, the creative freedom and, the time that I might dedicate to some other piece of the design build, I can now dedicate to, you know, being a better architect is, is kind of where I settled in my head. And maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. I mean, we, it's like what we just talked about, like managing and like, I, I even see it. Like I, I ran this by myself for so long and now I have some people that help write stuff. I have some people, I have, I have an intern and like now, like all of a sudden, like I I have to manage also like, and I have to read other people's stuff and I have to give feedback and I can't like, it's not just all like what I do. And I think that it's takes different skills and it requires different skills and, and you can't be all wrapped up in one aspect of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, 
I, I really got to be good with my time now. And I couldn't imagine running that extra component myself, at least at this point. Mm -hmm. What's, uh, your pet peeve when you go to a golf course? Like what, what's like one an, thing? Like an existing or, or when I'm working myself? Say, say we just went down the street to golf course and uh -huh. like, what's one thing that, that you just immediately catches your eye and oh, you're going to love this, right? The trees, you know, for sure. <laughs> I, I know you're big on that, but, uh, it's just, there's such a, an emotional attachment to, to trees and they're beautiful, but they got to be in the right spot. And I think, uh, you know, golfers, especially in the States, obviously, right. You know, they, they feel like it's, we talked a little bit about this, you know, it's the way it's always been. Well, no, you know, every year the tree is changing, you know, it's not the way it's always been. Um, and you see the trees from it's rarely the way it's always been. Exactly. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a pet peeve. Um, it, it drives me nuts when I see properties or places where people want to be like somebody else. Um, and golf, and I guess I've said this a lot, I, I guess, um, golf's the only game solely, you know, defined by the ground that is played on. And for me, what makes it so cool is that every golf course is different. There are no two golf courses the same, not even close. So why, why do you want to take all the things from your neighbor or the last place you went to travel to play and put it on your property? Now you might find concepts or themes that it works, but why don't, why don't you embrace what makes you special? You know? And so sometimes you see people really trying to force their golf course to be something that isn't and that that's painful. I feel like that's especially the case with like following the big name club in a city. So if you're in Chicago, if the way it used to be, if Medina does something, you got it. Right. Do it. You got to get in line. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I did a talk for superintendents uh, a couple years ago. It was like the top 10 things you can learn from the top 10. And it wasn't about how to be like the top 10. It was, well, if everybody, you know, they watch the masters and the next week they're after you to do X, Y, and Z or whatever tournament, well, why don't you turn that around on them and say, well, these are the things we can do. Like at Augusta, you know, what, 44 bunkers or something now and 22 originally, well, then let's look at making our bunkers more efficient. That's a great thing you can say from Augusta. Um, you know, clubhouses, some of the clubhouses at good clubs are pretty simple. Yeah. You know, they're not these monstrosities that cost a fortune to run and, you know, have all these moving pieces. They're pretty simple. Yeah. Use that. Don't, don't, you know. It's like the clubhouse. I saw in Palm Springs, they're spending like $80 million on a clubhouse out there. It's like, what? $80 million on yeah. a clubhouse. Like, do you think people are going, is it a hotel or people living in there? So one of the first courses or the first course I, I helped design and build as King Carter in Eastern Virginia, you know, in a kind of middle of nowhere, Northern neck, really cool spot, like really relaxed. Uh, but one of the, the owners was convinced that, uh, he could build this little golf shop and instead of getting a trailer, he built this like golf shop. That's about the size of this room, you know, like 
15 by 20 or something. And it was like incredibly simple, but it was spectacular. It was all he needed to operate. You know, he wasn't wasting money. People were there for golf, you know, and he had a grill that he cooked hot dogs on and, you know, a place to get a beer or whatever. And, you know, what else do you really need if you're really there for golf? It reminds me of the Dunes Club and uh, it was like Mike Kaiser's first thing. His first, it's like a private club. It's got probably like 150 members, but the pro shop is a closet. Yeah. Like literally just like, it's like you walk in and, but then the, you know, the clubhouse might be a thousand square feet. They have a grill. They grill something different every day. Yeah. That, that to me is what it's about. Like, it, especially you're, you save so much money right. doing that. And it's like, to be honest in today's landscape, like with the way the game is, I think parents spend a lot more time with their kids than ever before. Like then when I was a kid, I feel like when I was a kid, I just like, I'd like go figure out what I was doing every day. Now, like parents are with them. Like there's way more travel sports. It's like people don't hang out at the club all day anymore. You know, that, that with the, you know, next generation of golfers, like the, our generation is something that doesn't happen as much. Like, you know, more people are living in urban areas. Like we, at my old apartment or my old apartment, we had a pool. Like why would my wife ever drive 40 minutes to go to a pool when we have a pool on our rooftop yeah. that like overlooks Lake Michigan, you know? Well, that's why I'm, I'm struggling with some of these, um, fitness centers that clubs are doing. I, I mean, it's great, right? It's, it's a member, uh, members can see maybe value by having that, but you know, are they better served or, or, you know, are you better served going to gold's gym or, you know, to your club? Yeah. I, the, I'm trying to figure the, that out. The dues end up probably being about the same. Like, I don't, I always think people get in trouble when they do something that they aren't, you know, totally like, agree. Like if you, you're a golf course architect you know, if all of a sudden you decided, well, I'm going to start an offshoot business being a turf consultant too. Like you're not going to do both of them at a world-class level. Yeah. So, um, and like a country club, like you're a country club, you do tennis, like golf. Well, like not necessarily, you're not as good as a gym. Um, absolutely. Unless like you're a living facility, like a community and you have a standalone gym. Right. The, um, one of the cool things, uh, you know, took a trip to Scotland a couple of weeks yeah, ago. I was going to ask you. And that. those clubhouses are spectacular. Number one, those clubs are really good because they're in a community. They're like in town, right? So that, that really helps. But their, uh, clubhouses are so, they're so versatile, but they're so simple. You know, it's like all of them like to kind of face the 18th green or out onto the golf course pretty much. And I don't, I don't know enough. They might've all been designed by the same guys. And, you know, I just, I don't know enough about that part of it, but you know, they had a couple rooms. The best one seemed to have maybe three rooms with like dividers or doors that they could combine to do a big event. And otherwise they were three separate spaces, but just incredibly efficient. Um, it, it was just, it was like, you know, why do we need, you know, why do we need the space for 300 people? You know, I know that weddings are huge. I mean, some clubs make a ton of money yeah. doing that stuff and it helps drive the rest of the, the train. But, you know, there's also things like use a tent yeah. to host big events and then take the tent down, you know. 
it's I yeah I think a lot of clubs end up getting in trouble now with like the especially when they get old you get big clubhouses that get old and I you know probably the number one challenge in golf right now is how do clubs sustain themselves knowing that they have to reinvest yeah and for single operators especially once you get 20 30 years old and there are a lot of golf courses that are 20 or 30 years old it's a big number just to get not even to make huge improvements but just to get up to date um i worry about all the clubs built in the 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 big boom yeah like the 70s 80s 90s. yeah I mean, what what are you going to do when it's a million and a half dollars for an irrigation system, and that's not really something you can live without? And it's something you bury, you know, you dig a hole, put it in the ground, you bury it, but you have to have it. What would you do with those, like your quintessential Dark Ages course? What what would you do? Like what, I mean, like, I, I know it's like a blanket, but like what kind of right. things can you do with, you know, the small corridors, lots of water? Yeah, I mean, kind some some imaginative. You know, moving dirt is very difficult in those spaces, so you got to be very efficient with how you think about that. Um, you know, it's totally different than building a landscape and putting your golf course onto that. If you're doing that, or taking a really good piece of ground and, and making it happen. You know, when you're playing between two sets of houses, you know, what can you really do? Um, I think it's trying to make those courses as strategic as possible, as interesting as possible, make you think as much as you can is great. But at the same time, it's going to have to fit within pretty much what was there. Mm -hmm. It's a heck of a challenge. It, it is. There's no doubt. But, you know, how do you, how do you reinvest in yourself and get better, but not completely mess yourself up where you know that you're not going to be able to sustain yourself. Yeah. Because so you can't invest too much and then not be able to, you know. It's... Right. And there are a lot of clubs that are in the black barely or just a little in the red. Now you put this massive either debt service or whatever. Now, you you know, you're on an even bigger uphill climb. And so we we talked a little bit about, you know, golfer IQ and having golfers understand more than what they're looking at or what they're used to. And then how do they, how can they learn from some of those things that they see outside? Um, and then make good decisions. Cause you see clubs make a popular decision, but maybe not a good decision. Do you know what I mean? Like popular meaning everybody's doing it, but this might not be the thing we need to do, but it's like the trendy thing to do it's tough it's, it's it's too it's like making decisions within the context of a bigger plan because like oh god i was at this place recently and i've i've been there a ton like when i was younger and it's a cool little place but it's not will never be a world beater golf course and it's got a single owner now like it's got a situation where it could be really good the guy's spending money but he's doing it with like no plan and like you think about like oh you just did this big drainage project on the side of a green and you know you installed this cart path but like did you really think about like how you could you know 
have done all that and built the T at the same time right there that could make the next hole way better and move the path somewhere else. So it's not like right in the line of sight. Like, and it's like, if you just had a little bit of foresight, you wouldn't have spent any more money and you would have gotten so much more done. Absolutely. It's back to kind of that pet peeve thing. A pet peeve of looking at past work is how something was done and it, just a little different execution would have made it so much better without costing another penny. Yeah. You know, car paths are famous for everybody wants new car paths cause they don't like the bumps or the brakes or whatever. And they'll pave over an existing path. That's in a horrible spot, maybe yeah. to save a penny or something. Um, they'll build a dam that won't allow something to drain because of that. It'll be flashed to the player. So you're staring at it. You have golf balls bouncing on, you know, how about the car path where trees have been removed, but the car path still does the S curve where the trees, gosh, that's tough. Uh, I hate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, why can't you make, make good quality decisions, do all the work in an area, check it off the list and move on to the next thing. You know, yeah. that's what I really, and, and look, phased work is really hard. It might be the hardest thing to do because no matter what, when you come back even a year later and you're trying to replicate what you did the year previous, it's like starting all over. Um, but you got to do what you can do and you can't sit still. It's like the white pines. Those are never going to get better. You might as well get them down. You know, if a tree's failing, it's not going to get better. It stinks that, you know, it might be the stately tree that you know, has been at the club for forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For the but, last 40 years. Yeah, right. Of its two, of its 100 plus year history. But if the thing isn't leafing out and, you know, you got to take it down. I'm sorry. And then there's like a really nice oak tree that four of them surround. That's what drives me nuts. It's yeah. like the best tree on the property right. is just covered in trees around it. It's like, just let that guy do all the work that yeah. all these other trees are doing. Yeah, let him breathe. Yeah. yeah. It's... um. So let's talk about good golf. You, know, okay. you were just over in Scotland. Okay. Was that your first time? It was. Yeah. I can't believe it took me so long. What, you know, what, what were your thoughts? Where, where'd you go? Um, so played a, more golf than we should have a uh, couple buddies, um, played nine times in six days. It was, I'd played four times total in 2016 and 17 of like golf other than, you know, playing with my kids or something. So my golf game actually is worse after playing more because <laughs> uh, I used to kind of Bruce Litsky it, but um, it, it was a ton of fun. We started uh, on the West Coast, went all the way north, and then came back to kind of the East Coast. So it was it was a little stupid. Actually, the the guy that helped me put the trip together is like, you're, you're insane. And I was like, yeah, but I want to see as much. I don't know when I'm going to come back. Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is after I got back, it's like, I want to go next year. It's like, I really should have. I don't know. I should have thought through it better, but the couple things that struck me, um, the simplicity of the game, I wish more people could experience it. Cause I think it would give them better perspective on what's important. Raise their golfer IQ. Golfer IQ. Absolutely. Um, just the, the brilliance of using the ground, um, the differing problems, um, the community or um, golf is a community lifestyle over there. It's like everybody's a member of the club. It doesn't cost that much money to be a member. They love the game. They love their course. 
the best, the, the most fun I had from a, an experience standpoint at Tain, which is just a little South of Dornick. Um, and then at North Barrick, the caddies were complete, like locals, like members, you know, they were like called off the bench to come caddy and their perspective on their course, like the pride they had and the stories of their club championship. And man, that was so cool. It was great. It was more than just, you know, give me a yardage and tell me, you know, what line, you know, was that experience? That was great. Um, the level of maintenance is different, but I've struggled ever since I got back to understand how, how can we do better here? Part of it is golfer IQ that what people see on TV is what they think golf should be. So everything's lush and green and, and look, we're doing a better job of, of, uh, down and brown and, you know, firm and fast, we're doing better, but golfers still think the best golf courses are green to a certain extent. Right. I mean, at Trinity forest, like CBS was saturating the golf right, course right. because they, you know, that it's crazy. Cause like the Brown golf courses, like are almost proven to not show well on TV and people like lose interest because they don't have the perspective, but it all, it, I mean, it, it, the thing about it is like, it's not the course's fault. It's the golfer IQ problem. Yes. And it's not the superintendent's fault by any means. And I think golf course superintendents are, are the most innovative, creative guys that I work with. I love, I love how much you can learn. Go spend a day with a superintendent and just at any club, even the lowest level all the way to the top. And you'll learn something. The guys are, are, they're awesome. And they're doing the best to meet their clients expectations with the resources they're given. And I get really frustrated when clubs start to want to compare maintenance budgets. It's not about what your maintenance budget is versus the guy next to you. It's what you're trying to present as a club. Okay. What level you're trying to present, what level of experience, the clients, either whether it's daily fee or club members, what they expect, and then how that relates to the quality of golf. And then you're directing the superintendent to say, listen, these are kind of the things we're hoping to do. Help us do that. Those guys are going to find a way to do it. Okay. And they're going to give you the best advice of how to get there. Um, but I think from a golfer IQ perspective, Clients, you know, whether it's daily fee golfers that are demanding things to get in the door or club members, they're constantly pushing their maintenance staffs to do things that, um, you know, that can be tough, whether it's from a resource standpoint, labor is huge. Labor and golf might be the number one issue to, to work on, you know, throughout the United States. Um, but everything that a member demands or a daily fee golfer expects takes effort time. And then depending on where your golf course sits, so where it is in the country, what kind of soil it has, uh, what its water quality is, how many trees, uh, how much internal drainage, how good the golf course was built the first time all totally relate to what it takes to maintain it to the level that people expect. I told you a little bit about this yesterday. I wrote about it in the latest like bang for the buck for your buck piece at Michigan. 
I played this place, Champion Hill, and it's it was built by the owner, which usually you, you think, oh God, this is going to be a disaster. And this guy, like it was, it's sandy. It's an unbelievable piece of ground. And he just, he didn't do anything really dumb. Like nothing was, you know, the greens are in good just spots. Just made it work. It, it could be routed better. The bunkers are, are like hand, like they look like they're hand dug. Like I've hand dug a bunker with Jason Way, friend of the pod, but nice. before, and like they look like the bunker I dug, <laughs> but, but they're in good spots. And one of the things that I thought at walking, like it was, they had gravel paths and single cut everywhere. Love it. And like that to me is like so smart. Like, I I don't know why more munis don't have single cut. Well, it's again, everybody thinks they want to be what they see or what they think they know. Golfer IQ. So, you know, back to the UK stuff, Scotland, you know, down and brown, thin lies. I mean, it was an awesome golf experience. Ball runs along the ground, and I'm sure their maintenance inputs aren't nearly what we do even at a maybe even a municipal level, yeah. you know, here in the States. And it's just, you know, we've got to work to educate golfers on what is good golf, right? How do you, you know, golf can be anything. I, I I played a, a sand greens course in Salem, Virginia, a little bit as a kid. I wanted to go see one of those. It, I mean, it's it's golf, right? Yeah. It's not the most complicated thing in the world, but it's golf. Um, but it's you know, there's decision decisions that are being made and perspectives that we could all do a better job on, and I think it would help the game throughout. And the municipal courses, you know, it, it really depends. Let me back up. I think any great golf experience, great golf course, um, even if it's not at the highest level, has someone that has an incredible sense of ownership. So like here at Inverness, SP Germain was the driving force of getting this club off the ground. Tremendous impact. But you get, like in the modern day, you get a lot of places where there are either people involved that um, it's a job. There's not a sense of ownership or there's a lot of chiefs, but not a good voice. I think all of these places, especially maybe municipals would benefit from a good voice. You know, somebody that has a vision, uh, understands and can help get aligned. And well, empowered and not like, I think like is allowed and given like that, like, yes, you know, somebody that might keep them in check on like, Hey, like we can't afford this right now, but somebody that when they say, Hey, we should do this. They don't, the immediate response isn't no. And I think if you look at, I love looking at old aerials and you guys, you guys have done a great job with your sliders and things of looking back and forth, but you can really see clubs of any level that it's like chasing a squirrel. You know, they start after it one direction, then the squirrel runs over to the next tree and then they're chasing that. And then, you know, it's not even somewhat linear. I use a, I've used it before, like a family circus, you know, Billy goes on the adventure. I mean, some clubs are like that, right? They're like all over the place where it would be so much better if, if they just kind of picked a direction and went, even if there's mistakes along the way, you know, they're headed in, in a good direction. There's very few places that have just like 
been content with doing nothing. Well, and some some of the best spots end up being the ones that were broke for a really long time because they didn't have any money to do anything. Yeah. Um, Philmont in Philadelphia had struggled for a while trying to figure out how to keep going. And they're kind of still working through some of the uh, management stuff. But that golf course, uh, there was some debate whether it was Flynn or who designed it, the North especially there. And we kind of uncovered it was Willie Park Jr. But because they didn't do a lot along the way, it's so well-preserved. You're exactly right. It's it's pretty amazing. Sometimes the best thing is when they're broke. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.